Our scripture this morning is Genesis 2, verses 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Anna. We're all forgetting our mics today. All right, I'm on too. There you go. I needed a laugh this morning. It's kind of good to do that. We were laughing in there before we started today, and we were laughing yesterday quite a bit, I think. Um, so it's good to do that um, and to, to be able to do that as God's people. Our God is a God of laughter and joy as well, and so we, it's okay to do that. Well, we are in the middle, right smack dab in the middle, of our current series that we're calling Your Body Matters, a biblical look at our life as embodied creatures. It's different than any other series really that we do or have done. Most of the time our diet is working through books of the Bible together from start to finish, and yet we're taking a little uh, detour into a, a topical series, you might call it, that's landing in texts of the Bible because the text drives everything we do here at Bethany Church, uh, but it's a little different. And we're right in the middle of it. Um, this idea of what does it mean to be embodied creatures, meaning that you have a body from God. We started this first couple weeks. If you haven't listened, I encourage you to go back online to listen to those or on our podcast through your uh, smartphone uh, to listen to our first week where we laid a groundwork. And last week uh, we talked about confusion that abounds throughout looking at what does it mean to be a man and a woman and how we even feel a disconnect with our bodies. And today we're going to present the positive view and the positive look at what does God say about being man and women, our genders, our sexes, you might say. Well, the past five decades have seen a number of factors that bring us to our current state on gender, the sexes, whether from an early feminist movement that sought to argue that there are no important differences between the sexes, leveling those unique differences, making mother and father interchangeable in the family and a man and woman interchangeable in marriage, we've landed in a place of confusion. You add to that that late modernity's narrative that we talked about, that authenticity comes from being true to what you feel rather than maybe even what reality is. 
from 2015 Supreme Court decision to redefine marriage to a monogendered same-sex union, to Bruce Jenner's covered or vanity fair that we saw a few years back, bringing about this wave of cultural attention to the issue of gender and gender dysphoria, feeling like you're in the wrong body, which we talked about last week. It's not very hard to see. It's pretty easy to see, actually, how we've arrived at this place where there's a new prevailing ideology that these titles of men and women are meaningless. It's kind of where we're at. These categories, they're just biology. They don't really matter, at the very least. And at the worst, oppressive and restrictive at their worst. That's where we're at today. What does the Bible say about being male and female? That's where we want to go today. What's the positive view and the positive look at what does the Bible say about being a man and a woman? What if it says something different? This morning we're going to look at this grand narrative of Genesis 1 and 2 to see three clarifying factors that are going to help us answer what does it mean to be a man? If you're a man today, what does that mean for you and what's God's intent? Or if you're a woman today, what does that mean for you? What's God's intent? And as we said before, we won't answer every question today. We will just scratch the surface. We'll be talking a lot in terms today as we come to this in terms of marriage. And here's why. Because when the Bible speaks of a gender, of being a man and a woman, it doesn't just say a man is a sports fan, barbecue-loving, tough guy. And a woman is a a romantic comedy fan, cooking, loving, in touch with her emotions. That's not what the Bible says. Those are culturally conditioned, gender even stereotypes, you might say, that we actually do a disservice if we place too much emphasis on those cultural kind of uh, models and modes. But rather, this is what we look at in the Bible. Rather, it says this, a quote from Sam Andrides. He says, rather man, when we look at the Bible, it's do this for her, and woman, do that for him. It's clearer on action than essence. And the man's action for the woman, he finds out what it means to be a man. And, a woman, and in a woman's action doing for him, she becomes a woman. So gender uniqueness, what it means to be a man and a woman, is less about men love this, women love that, and that's just the way they are. It's more about interaction towards and with the other. And so our most clear picture and intimate place that shows up in is marriage. And yet today, as we even talk a lot about marriage and relationships, that doesn't mean that if you are single, it doesn't make you any less of a man or woman or give you any less opportunities to appropriately express your gender as a man and a woman in your relationship, in the church, in those you interact with. This is for all of us. Our purpose this morning is to point to the truly real design that God has made, that you are created, that we are creatures. We've been talking a lot about that, haven't we, in this series? That you're a creature who's been given a body, And that that body points to a very real, true, binary male and female. That he's created, that he's truly revealed through the Word of God, which needs to be our guide even over and above our culture. We're going to point to the tragedy it will be for us, for individuals, for society and families, the further we move away from this. That man and woman, it, it matters. There's goodness in these different sexes. 
We all need to hear this. So let's look today. Three factors. Grab your outline. We got it there. Have your text open to Genesis 2. We're going to look at the first factor where any biblical understanding of gender must start is that God has created man and woman equal. He has created man and woman equal. Here's Genesis 1. We've been, uh, before we get to 2, we've been camping in this passage a lot too. Uh, Genesis 1.27, God created man and women in his own image. He created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The first thing we see here is that God created, God made sexual differentiation. He designed it. He made it. Male and female are not then cultural creations. God did it. God made it. They're not society's traps. This, and this is what is emerging today. That your gender and a binary view of gender is a cultural creation that's too constrictive, even biologically so. When God has embedded male and female down to your very cells, he's made us which we express out in our relationships as creatures. We're made, not self-existent. We came from somewhere, and God designed us to be a certain way. Male and female is given by God. Verse 27 said that as we read. God created man in his own image. He created them male and female. Two God made us. And if we want to tweak it, if we want to change it, ignore it, decide it's fluid and changeable, we risk losing the essence of who God made us. Now, we talked last week about the reality of gender dysphoria, that it's a real thing. So if you're hearing this today and thinking, well, they're not even acknowledging that, go back and listen to that message. We acknowledge that's a real thing and that people really struggle and they're really hurting. But today we're talking about the reality of the positive aspect of being male and female. So we're created by God. But how are we equal? How are we the same as men and women? We're going to see three things from Genesis 1, uh, 27 to 28. They're just going to pop up for us, given us all at one time today. They were both made in his image, both to fill the earth, both to rule the earth. First, this verse 27 says that God created man in his image. And if you look up at verse 26, it's God saying this. He says, let us, let us make man and woman in our image. I can't stress how important that is this morning. Being made in his image, being made in him and in his image, not only points to our equality as men and women, it actually gives us the basis for our real differences as well, that being made in his image. Because while there's unity and there's sameness in the Trinity, we know that, Father, Son, and Spirit, there's unity. Three persons, all God. There's still three persons with different names, with different responsibilities, and different roles, you might even say, in the Trinity. And if it's good enough for the Trinity to function this way, it should be good enough for men and women, shouldn't it be? That there's uniqueness and sameness and yet differences? That's what we find in God. 
and we're made in his image. That's why we see it in two different genders, man and woman. Being made male and female in God's image means that we're created like him in some ways. We mirror him in some ways. And so we need to rise in the morning to remind ourselves we're created. Men. We should rise as men and say, I'm in your image today as a man. And I'm celebrating that uniqueness and gratitude that I am a man who will image my God today as a man. Uniquely even. And women, the same for you. Rise saying there's nothing better than to be a woman made in the image of God to show the world who he is through my unique femininity as a woman. That's why he's designed us that way. And this imaging expresses itself in relationship. It's all about relationship. Relationship between husband and wives. Relationships as we interact in the church between men and women. It's about relationship. Let us Let us make, there's a plural there, let us make, verse 26 says, man and woman, in our image. Do you catch that? Possibly the first clear indication in the Bible that God is three in one. Three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God in essence, but three persons. One God in unity, but three persons. It's about relationship, and it always has been with God. Sometimes we don't think about that. There's an absolute, eternal, equal, loving relationship in the Trinity that's always existed forever. Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Bible, especially the Gospels, are a picture of that. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit really almost falling all over themselves in a loving relationship with each other. Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet, they don't act and respond to each other exactly the same. All through the Bible, the Father loves the Son. He sends the Son. The Father's not the sent one. The Son is the sent one. The Son loves the Father. The Son submits to the Father. The Father doesn't submit to the Father. The Son submits to the Father. And then the Spirit comes forth from both of them into our hearts. The Father doesn't come to our hearts. The Spirit comes and does that work. They all equally work together in love, but even in different ways, roles, and responsibilities. It's the heart of the Trinity. Galatians 4 lays it out really clear to us. Because you are sons, God has sent forth, the Father has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see it right there. God the first, the Father, has sent Uh, sends the third, the spirit of the second, the son, there, so that we can say, Abba, Father, that they all are. Working together as one God equal, and yet three persons working differently in our life. It's the song we sing to the world as we come together as a man, as a woman, in our relationships, being made equally in his image. But so too in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, there is equality when as men and women in the world, we are sent forward to do a work, to fill the earth with more of our kind, to to multiply, which we're going to talk about next week. It's the body and sex next week. So we'll get to that next week. But we are sent forth to, to, to multiply, to make more image bearers in the world. 
have children, basically, is what God says. And to till and to work and to create in the world together, there is an equality there that both men and women are called to. So as men and women, we are called through these three equal responsibilities. We image God to the world, made in His image, filling the earth, ruling the earth. We do this together, equal as men and women. And add to that, both are equal beneficiaries of grace, of the gospel, of salvation, man and women. First Peter says, we are fellow heirs, men and women, of the grace of life. Here's what that means. There are no second-class citizens in the church. There are no second-class genders in the church. Too many times in the church, I'm talking church whole now, not just Bethany Church. Too many times in the church there's been a subtle, sometimes, sometimes not so unsubtle, mistreatment of women. Maybe a cute blonde joke here, snide comment there, dismissive attitude here by men towards women. Men, that doesn't honor our manhood. That doesn't honor the women God gave us to protect, to to, to cherish, to lead as Christ led the church. It does none of that. It doesn't do that. We've got to do better than that. The church in, in general does. God has given us equal dignity, equal value, equal worth, and so equal honor how he made us. He needed both of us to image him. It's our first clarifying factor that God has made us equal. But as being made in God's image points to our equality, equality as the eternal relational love of the Trinity is imaged in that um, our, our relational love, so too the different responsibilities and roles the Father and Son and Spirit play, we too are designed differently. We're designed uh, differentially, you might say, differently. So we turn to Genesis 2. I want to push back against the cultural assumption that different means unequal. It doesn't. That's what the culture has said. If there's any differences at all, even down to the fact that one gender has to bear a child and the other doesn't, that means unequal. That's not the case. Different doesn't mean unequal. It doesn't in the Trinity, does it? It doesn't in the Trinity. So why should it between men and women? We're differently designed. So as we turn to Genesis 2, I want to push back and see that. Here's our second clarifying factor today. God has designed differences. So yes, he's made us equal, equal in honor, dignity, and worth, and to lead and to rule and to procreate and image him. And yet God has designed differences. You know the easiest place to see that? Go to a preschool class. They get it. They just know there's differences. I'm not talking about like just certain playing different toys. I mean, they just know it. If you were to ask, like, are you the same as her? No. I mean, they just naturally, we just know. Are you the same as him? No. They just, they just, I mean, you just, you're born with that sense. We almost have to unlearn that, which is what our culture is doing. It's teaching us to unlearn what you naturally kind of are born knowing, that men and women are different in some ways. And it's designed. It's purposeful. There's differences in men and women. Differences in how we're to carry out our common equal call. Uh, Isn't it just possible? 
it is? Isn't it just possible that God wants each of us, as we experience and, and watch each other and the different gendered kind of responsibilities and roles, or as we respond to crisis and joy and sadness and celebration and success and failure and loss, that we would learn from one another and grow and watch and challenge one another and even compliment one another as we watch women respond and watch man respond in different ways. Because one gender, I, I truly believe, can't experience, express, communicate all the varied responses that are necessary to live as God's children. He's a God of diversity, even in his unity. He loves that as we display his image to the world. And these differences, they actually teach us how to live and serve each other the more intimate the relationship is. Have you seen those uh, TV shows where there's a disclaimer before or after the commercial break? Well, there's no commercials anymore, unless I'm on a lot of TV. But there's a d- disclaimer that says, don't try this at home. You ever seen those? Like, oh, it sounds like a good idea. Let's try it. Get, get whatever, you know. Let's try it. Well, this is actually a do try at home. When we get today into this talk about men and women, this is a do try this at home. And the more intimate the relationship, marriage being the most, the more important these differences actually are. The more intimate the relationship, the more important these differences between men and women are. So let's quickly see four from Genesis 2.15. Here's the first one. Here's a difference. The man is to lead in the care for creation. Remember, as I said this, we look and see different responsibilities does not equal inequality. But Adam is created first. Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man, the first man, became a living being. And not only in that, in verse 15, Adam's given the responsibility of setting up shop, of getting his shop ready, whatever his tools would have been, getting things ready, setting up shop, and working in the garden before Eve even is on the scene. Adam's given a responsibility. Start doing your job, Adam. You're here. And he begins to keep it and to grow it and to cultivate it. Gardening, he's building things and doing things. And he begins to name the animals as they pass by. Can you imagine that? In this divine parade, the animals passing by. Kind of like Noah, they came by and he's naming all these animals. He's got this job to do, this responsibility that he's been given. And interesting... He's also given the commandment to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil before Eve arrives. So how would she know? How would she know when she arrives on the scene? He's got a responsibility to communicate to her as the firstborn. It's his job. It's his responsibility. He has a spiritual responsibility for his wife before she ever shows up on the scene. How is she going to know? She's going to be created just like him out of, where am I? What is this place? Why am I here? Adam, tell her. Adam, lead her towards God. Adam, let her know that there's danger out there. 
let her know. It's kind of responsibility. In the ancient world, the firstborn, the firstborn had a unique responsibility to lead. They just did. A unique calling to lead. To be given a unique role to care for, to provide, to secure the family. And that's what God is doing here by creating Adam first. It's not because he's more special. It's not because he's just going to be naturally better at it. And in fact, we see from the fall that we maybe aren't sometimes even. It's just the way God has designed it. It's the way he chose to do it. He's saying, Adam, you are responsible in a unique way. And so too, then, that means you, man, and me, man. A unique way to cherish, to care for this woman, to provide for her, to lead her to me, your God. And I will actually hold you accountable in a unique way too. Do you know that? You will be held accountable, man, in a unique way for this responsibility. Take a look at just one study that was done. There is a great impact that dads, fathers, men can have on families in the church. Time and time again, the social science studies have shown this. The influence of the father spiritually on the family is proven over and over again. Just a little graph, but talks about the influence of parents attending church on the faith of their children as they grow up. When neither parent attends the church, there's about a 6%, this is just numbers, but still there's something in it, that the children will end up being faithful, following God, being in the church. When just the mother attends alone, without the dad, it's about 15%. Look what happens when the father attends. It jumps up to 55%. And in some studies they've seen actually even when the father goes and the woman even doesn't, it goes up even more a little bit. It's not across the board. This one showed that in this study at least that when both do it even goes up more. But look at the jump. So goes the father, so goes the family. It's a high calling, isn't it, man? It's a big responsibility. So here Adam is before Eve is created, and he's working, and, and he's naming. He's by himself. He's all alone. And it's not good for him to be alone, verse 18 says. God says there's, there's some frustration there. There's some frustration, some incompletion. And so a divine sleep comes to Adam, and he performs the first surgery. It's a divine surgery. It's God's surgery. It's the perfect surgery that he does on Adam to create Eve. And Eve awakes in this new world. Adam made from the dust. Eve taken from the man, made from him and from his side. A real piece of the him. And she awakes in this new world, probably without much prep, without much runway to say, who am I and where am I? Who am I? And where am I? And Adam awakes probably wondering, what happened? Why did I just pass out? Like, what happened to me? I doubt he was awake for the surgery. What happened? Where, where am I? And so he probably slowly goes back to work. And the text says, God brings her to him. God brings her to him. I like to think, though, who knows, but I like to think this way, that, that maybe God didn't directly bring her to him, like she was just there when he woke up, but maybe Adam went back to work, and he was on the other side of this garden, and through his own providence, he directs her. Maybe she heard him, like, whistling on the other side 
the garden or calling it out an animal name. That's ah, going to be a so-and-so, you know. She heard, what's that? What is that? So she wanders over there maybe. And she emerges out from some overgrowth in the garden where Adam hasn't quite tilled back yet or cut back. And she comes out and there they stand. And Adam says, whoa, you're exactly right. It's basically what, that's basically what Genesis 2.23 is. You can bring it up now, guys. <laughs> that is basically what Adam says. He says, whoa, woman. It's poetic, really, is what's happening here. I like to think of that song that's a... And all of a sudden, whoa, woman. And this is what he says. This is now. Oh, here's the frustration. Don't you see it? Oh, this is now. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. And maybe Eve, maybe her heart skips a beat and she looks... I understand him. He's like me, but not like me, and yet I'm compelled to go towards him. What did he have for her? What did he give her? She was taken out of him. He gave her a grounding, a place, a purpose, and when he named her even, he gave her a security in that moment. Okay, let's start this project together. Your man I'm woman, let's go forward. The man is to provide security for the woman. He leads in tilling the ground, but he provides security for the woman, and so too today we are as well. Eve wasn't created out of the ground like Adam. Do you catch that? She was not created the same way. She came from his side, and the word for the woman comes from the word man. She understood this, and Adam gave her a safe place to be that, something different but same, to be a woman and express her God-given identity. And so the world opens up where she came from, what she was, who she was in relationship to him, and what are we supposed to do about that one tree over there, Adam? What are we supposed to do about that one? So how does this leadership play out for men? This protection, this leadership... Well, first, it's sacrificially. Never to be used to oppress, abuse, take advantage of, manipulate, distort, or get somebody to, to knuckle under your authority. Never. Sacrificially. Then when we lead, we lead, as Paul says in Ephesians, as Christ loved the church. So it's oriented towards her well-being. Our leadership is oriented towards a woman's well-being in any context, really, most intimately in your marriage, but in, in the church as well. Towards her well-being, her issues, her struggles in servant, sacrificial leadership. But it is leadership. How about security? How about security? Ask her. Ask her. What can I do what can I do as a man that would make you feel, seem, experience security more? Maybe it may be bringing into your home a steady income. Maybe taking over more of the discipline. Maybe getting a black belt in karate. I don't know. Who knows? It's it's different. There's no like. There's no one answer for this. That's why it's in relationship. 
There's no one way to say, well, that's how you be a man to make a woman secure. No, ask her. Ask the woman if you're married or attached to women in certain ways in intimate relationships, friend, or even marriage. What, what, what can I do that would make you feel more secure? Definitely means security through spiritual leadership. We see in that slide, we see Adam given that responsibility sacrificially, but with strength and courage and boldness and initiative, not passivity. I love these two quotes. They're long, but I just loved them, so we're going to do them. He says, there's just such men. It means gentle and strong. That's how we lead. It means gentle and strong. He says, these kind of men present a paradox to the world. His hands build up his household, wrestle with his boys, sip tea with his daughters, and grip the hilt of his sword against the agents of darkness. He's a godly warrior who sleeps in his armor, fierce and meek and good wherever he finds himself. The description can, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, be redeemed. Here was a quote from King Arthur. Thou wert the meekest man that ever ate in the hall among ladies, and thou wert the sternest knight to thy mortal foe that ever put spear in the rest. It's complex, isn't it? It's gentle and meek and a servant, but it's not passive. It's not passive. It's leading. It's caring. It's spiritual. It's leading towards Christ, really, is what it is. It's taking your family, the women in your life, the women you know, and leading them to Jesus by your love, by your example, by your words, by your life, by what you care about, by your church attendance, all those things wrapped up in one. Here's what he says. He goes on to say, we would emasculate men of old, which means basically emasculate. Um, Would we not chide Abraham for wandering? Jacob for wrestling, Joshua for fighting, Elijah for mocking, Noah for madness, Job for arrogance, Daniel for incivility, Nehemiah for violence. He's saying our culture would would chide these men. Nathan for his high-handedness, John the Baptist, he's a name-caller, Paul for divisiveness, and the Son of God we would chide today for brandishing a whip and turning over tables in the temple. Have we chosen the conveniences of niceness over the discomforts of godliness. He said, I fear someday lying comfortably beneath the inscription, here lies the father, husband, churchgoer, just a really nice guy. We must lead men, both gentle and strong, both good and courageous, godly, not just nice guys. And that means sometimes taking risks. That means sometimes saying things that aren't popular. That means sometimes picking up the sword to fight spiritual darkness for the protection of the women and children in our lives and in our church. Men, we have to lead. We have to lead. So how about the woman? The woman brings rest to the man. Remember, God said it was not good that Adam be alone. Now please hear this. We talk through this today. Those of you who are single, those of you who are widowed, it does not mean you are any less a man or a woman. Because you have ultimately you have relationships where you interact as a man or woman. And actually, all of you in here, every one of us in here can be a spiritual mother or father to someone in this church. Just because you're not married doesn't mean you're any less of a man or woman. Because we're all a family here. We all interact as men and women here. But God said it's not good that Adam was alone. There was an incompletion, an unrest. Like, it just isn't quite there yet. 
not quite there yet. We look at his response again. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is now a great sigh of relief for Adam. It's a sigh of rest. At last. At last. This is now at last. It's, it's It's a cry of rest. You came for me. We belong together. You complete me. You're my complement is really what Adam is saying. Here's uh, back to Andreas again. He said he pined for what he'd been missing from him. It had been wrenched from him in deepest rest when he was asleep. So he expresses when they meet that she was taken out of him. The climax portrays the dynamic of their, their union while she restores him to divine rest, a respite from that animal toil he was doing. He secures her with a name. While Adam secures Eve, Eve is home to Adam. It's kind of sweet, isn't it? She's taken from his side. She's home to him. So what does that rest look like today? I mean, on the one, it can look very conventional. It can look really non-conventional. But at its core, and hear me out before you jump on this, at its core, just like the man's leadership is geared towards the home, the woman's leadership or, or, or loving and rest and giving rest, as she leads in a way, too, is geared towards the home. So don't leave here today thinking, that means I said the man's place is outside the home and the woman's place is in the home. Here's how we know that's not true. The split of home and work sphere, men go outside the home, women stay in the home, didn't actually even happen in history until the uh, Industrial Revolution. Didn't even, there wasn't even a thing. Men leave the home, women are the homemakers. That was an industrial revolution thing that happened where work began to be done outside the home. It wasn't even a thing. Everybody, it was home. You worked at home, you lived at home, you ate at home, you did everything at home. Work was not done primarily outside the home. So whenever we hear the Bible say that women have a responsibility in the home, like the man does, that a woman has a responsibility to make a physical home, what do we do? We read our culture back onto the Bible. We've got to be careful of that. Because before the Industrial Revolution, everyone was in the home. Nobody worked outside the home. The women of the Bible were very industrious. It doesn't mean passive homemaker. They were very industrious. If you look at Paul's letters, at the Gospels, the the description of Proverbs 31. These passages aren't to discourage women from work or discourage from active responsibility in the family. The passages are given to set a vision and help families make priorities as they make life decisions that the home matters. As a man's leadership is oriented towards his home and wife, A woman's giving of rest is oriented towards the home as well. The home matters. We're we're not saying men go out and and earn the living, women stay at home. It's not saying that. It's just saying the home matters. The Bible's really clear. There is something really important about a woman, about a wife's nurturing home emphasis. It's really clear. Remember, I'm not saying it means the wife does all the cooking and cleaning. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, there's some husbands that do most of the cooking, that love cooking. 
that pick it up, pick up the, the, the vacuum and do half the cleaning. I mean, it's not, they're not, it's not talking about that necessarily. But don't be too quick to dismiss what the Bible makes much of. So what is it for your home then? What's it for your unique home? Because again, we're not putting just cultural expectations of what they would say. Well, this is what a woman is and this is what a man is. Ask your, ask your husband if you're married. Like the woman should ask her, or the man should ask his wife, what makes you feel secure? The woman should ask your husband, what would make our home feel more restful for you? What could I do uniquely as a woman that would make our home feel more restful? You know? Maybe it's something as simple as, well, if we just like clean this stacks of papers up and organize them, I would feel so much better. Maybe it's something as simple as that. But you have to ask. We have to communicate that way. Security and, and rest that we're called to bring to each other. Ask. The man leads in care and security. The woman brings rest. And finally, the woman brings this divine help to the man. The divine help. In that God makes her for this. God gives her this unique responsibility to, to complete the man. Take a look at the verse one more time. And the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So Adam's told to set up shop. Begin working in the garden. And remember, this is all pre-fall. So some people have tried to say, oh, those differences, they were just because of the fall. Because sin entered the world, that's why those differences came in. They're not really, no, no, this is all before even the fall took place. This is God's original design and intent before sin even enters the world. Is it distorted now? You better believe it. We fail as men, don't we? We fail as women, don't we? That's why we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the design was there before. Adam sets up shop. He begins to work the garden to be a leader in the mission. And so she too is called to work with equal value to populate the earth and to rule it, to raise family, to, to build culture, to do church together, to be together. But a different divine responsibility. This, this helper suitable, it's not really a great, very helpful, not very helpful for us. The translation is just not really great. You hear like, helper suitable, what, in the, what does that mean? Like, what is that even, it's just not great. Here's a couple quotes from Kathy Keller, a woman uh, who speaks on this. She says, the English word helper, it's not the best translation for this Hebrew word, azir, helper connotes merely, when you think of that, helper connotes merely assisting someone eh, who could do the task almost as well without help. That's not that great, is it? If that's what it means. But is there is almost all we use in the Bible to describe God himself. Other times it's used to describe military help, such as reinforcements, without which a battle would be lost. To help someone then is to make up what is lacking in him with your strength your unique woman's strength that you bring that he doesn't have, and vice versa, what he brings that you don't have. Woman was made to be a strong helper is a better way to put that. It's not something that the man could do. And he did probably just as well without me. No, 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 no. He absolutely needs you. And we need each other in the church too, men and women. A strong helper. So how about suitable? That's just as unhelpful. A helper suitable, the verse says, the word suitable, she goes on to say, is just as unhelpful a translation. 
this, this compound phrase that's literally like opposite him. So a helper who's like opposite him. The entire narrative of Genesis 2, she says, in which a piece of the man's removed to create the woman strongly implies that each is incomplete without the other. Male and female are like opposite to one another. They're like two pieces of a puzzle that fit together because they're not exactly alike nor randomly different, but they're differentiated such that together they can complete or they can create a complete whole. You see how it's much more beautiful. It's much richer. It's much fuller than just a suitable helper. It's so much deeper. In other words, we could say a suitable helper is a woman, a strong helper who comes along as the very thing a man needs to strongly complete him by bringing the very help he needs. In marriage, in the church. Do you see how this is a beautiful, grand story? It's something big. Do you see how this is so much more than men like football and women like knitting? I mean, come on. It's so much bigger than that. Or, woman, you stay at home, and man, you do the work. It's so much bigger than that. So alike, yet so different we are. And the beauty of it is that this, this kind of uh, uh, gentle, humble, strong leading by men and nurturing, helpful, strong assistance by women can be lived out in the church as well. This is for all of us, not just for those married in here today. So three factors. God's created us equal. God's designed differences. And then just a quick final one today. we got to pass on this story. We have to pass this story on. This, this grand narrative, you might call it. Who we are, where we came from, why we're here. You see, how this, this is a bigger picture of God's great design than our culture, our nation, our neighbors. They so desperately need this and need to see it lived out. If he designed it, Anything outside of it cannot bring ultimate joy. It won't bring human flourishing if he designed it. Did you hear that? Anything outside of one man and one woman living inside these God-given parameters will not flourish. It will not bring ultimate joy to our families or churches. Can you see why as God's people we must continue? We've got to hear this story ourselves. Because aren't we, in our own fallen sense, able to really quickly distort this? Men? Yes, we know that. Women? Yes. How quickly do we distort this image? How quickly do the enemy love? And that's exactly what he preyed upon, didn't he? That's exactly what he preyed upon. Why did he go to Eve? He bypassed the spiritual leader of the family. Adam was actually probably standing right there. Does he speak up at all? No, he doesn't. He went right past it plowed through God's design. And I think we're fooling ourselves too if we think that we, if we don't pass this story on to our kids, if we think, well, if they just hear about Adam and Eve in Sunday school, that's enough. You know, in our we'll, we'll read a children's Bible to them, that's enough. We've got to think deeper than that. The culture at least used to give a little bit of a nod to Adam and Eve, but culture's moved on from this story. It's way past, moved on from this. But we can't. And it's what everybody needs. We're going to have to make a concerted effort as a church, as parents, as spiritual mothers and fathers in the churches to pass this on, to keep talking about it, this grand story. And so to this, as men, the closer we grow to Christ, 
We've got to hold each other accountable to sacrificial, leading, dying, strong, courageous love. And women, the closer you grow to Christ as well, you image his rest, his life-giving, strong help. Let's pray. Lord, this is a lot to take in today. It's a big picture that we are unique, we are the same, and yet we are different. Responsibilities, roles, callings, Lord. They're not the cultural stereotypes we think about, but beauty and how men are to lead and provide, protect and care, and women are to come alongside to give rest and nurture the lives of men and families in the church. Thank you, Lord, that each of us gets to mirror the Trinity in unique ways. That men, we image God uniquely. That women, you get to image God uniquely in other ways that men don't get to and women vice versa with men. Lord, help us continue to grow in this uniquely as men and women. Give us the grace, the mercy, and the gospel of Jesus Christ in our failings and the strength of your spirit as we go forward. In Christ's name, amen. Real quick before David starts, so I got some resources out there today I want to make you aware of. $5, we're trying to give as many resources through this series as we can. There's a couple of books out there. One's called The Grand Design, Male and Female in His Image. We've got A Father's Guide to Blessing His Children, a really cool little resource on how to use the Scripture to bless your children uh, at bedtime or at other times. What's the Difference? Manhood and Womanhood, According to the Bible by John Piper. We've got Design for Joy. How the Gospel Impacts Men and Women. That's male and female authors in that one. And then Bible Reading. It's a guide for uh, fathers to read the Bible with their kids or mothers. You could use it too. They're out there today. Grab some to keep our thoughts and our dialogue going about what does it mean to me uh, to be a man or a woman. Please stand with me as we respond with how great thou art. <clears throat>